Are you awake out there? Huh? Swatting all those mosquitoes. You're tired of that? You're probably all woke up now and ready to go here. Just going to swat some more at camp this week, kids, right? Go swat some mosquitoes, and you'll be fine. Pick off a few leeches. You'll be great. It'll be a fun time at camp. Learn lots of stuff. Hear God's word taught. Maybe meet a missionary. And uh, I'm envious. I'd love to go to camp this week. Maybe uh, I'll get to go before too long. Well, we've got some Bible quiz questions for you. hope the rest of you are awake and alert. And uh, some of them are pretty easy. Some of them you're going to have to open up your Bible and check out some verses, see if you can find the answer. But uh, we'll start off kind of easy. Again, uh, just shout the answer out. You don't have to raise your hand. You have to jump up. Just make sure you can be heard. Because if you mumble it and somebody else beats it, you know, you got to be loud. All right, here we go. How many books in the Old Testament? Ooh, close. 39. And then 9 times 3 is 27 for the New Testament. That's right. Okay, Jeff, that was very close. But that only works in hand grenades and horseshoes, right? (laughs) (laughs) All right, 39. And total makes what? 66, of course. All right, now here's a little thinker. You might want to consult your index, or you're going to be doing this. What's the 12th book of the Bible? The 12th. That's what I got to. Second Kings. Judy is on top of things. All right. All right, I'm going to give you a Bible verse, and I want you to quote it. And uh, you can quote it in whatever translation. Most of us probably memorized it in the King James, but if you know it in the New King James or something else, that's fine too. Uh, but I want you to quote, first one to quote it. Um, i tell you what, the first one to start quoting it, everyone else just let that person go all the way through, and we'll see if he or she gets it, okay? And then if that's a failure, then we'll go to the next one. How's that sound, okay? All right? Or it misses a word, you know? We'll give you one word mistake like they do in Awana, right? They give you one help in Awana or two helps. What do you get in Awana these days? You know, has anybody been in Awana for a while? I think it used to be two helps. What do you get in Master's Club? Has to be perfect. It's got to be perfect all the way. They're tough. That's right. That's the Master's Club. All right, here's the verse. Isaiah 53, 6. Let's hear a quotation of it. Starts out with the word all. All right, Melissa's got it. Go ahead, Melissa. Go ahead. That's all right. We won't, don't look at her. No way. She started it off right, though. He's going to finish it. All we. All right, I heard Sandy go all the way from start to finish first. All right. Anybody want to contest that? Okay. <laughs> no way, right? All right. Good job. Ladies, three on the board. Men, nothing yet. Oh, no, no, no. No, no, no free rides tonight. All right, Ten Commandments we have. What's the third one? There it is. The Lord's name in vain is the third commandment. Wow. All right. There are other people out there besides Sandy and Judy, right? I mean, there's other people out there tonight? Okay. All right, I'm going to give you an expression. Tell me what the verse is that describes it, and it doesn't have to be word perfect. What is commonly known as the golden rule? All right. Uh, Well, I thought I heard Kimmy. What was that one you had? Treat others the way you want to be treated. That's a fine paraphrase. Anybody want to dispute that? 
Whoever has the gold makes the rules. That's Judy's golden rule. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's found in two places in your Bible. It's found in Matthew 7, 12 and in Luke 6, 31. Uh, As you would have men do to you, so do ye also to them. Uh, in uh, various ways of expressing that. Pre- previous to that, it had been known in the ancient, before Christ's time, as don't treat other people the way you don't want to be treated. It's kind of had a negative twist to it before. Jesus put a positive spin on it. said, treat them the way you want to be treated. Well, that was kind of a neat thing. All right. Number six, who was the Apostle Paul's first convert? He's actually named in the Bible. Apostle Paul's first convert. Anybody want to take a, take a swat at that? All right, I give you a chapter. Ver- I give you a chapter. It's in, found in Acts chapter thirteen on his first missionary journey. You can take a look at that if you want. Who's the first guy he shared the gospel with and who became a believer? He's got a first and last name there. It's in. Uh, within the first 10 verses. He's called an intelligent man. That's it, Sergius Paulus. Some believe that's where Paul took his new name, was from his first convert, Paul. Because up to this point, he had been Saul. So you hear him Uh, Hearing the gospel in verse 7, we know that he became a believer when you look at verse 12. Then the proconsul believed, and uh, so he became a believer and was Paul's first convert on his first missionary journey. All right, Sherry had that one. Five on the board for the ladies. Man, you're not on the board yet now. Here we go. Let's go back to the uh, creation account. What did God create on day three? Day three. Um, let's see, I think that was day two. Plants, plant life, thank you. That was uh, Carly back there. Yeah, the same stuff you have growing in your garden right now, seed-bearing plants. And then the fourth day, he made the sun. So plants before the sun, that's interesting. There was already light, but it wasn't sunlight, so they could grow still. All right, that's Genesis 1, 11 through 13. God had made light on the first day, right? All right, so um, oh, I made six there, I think. All right, here's a sword drill verse. Ready? Close your Bible up. Hold it by the spine. No fingers in the pages there. Here's the verse. Repeat it after me. Wait for me to say charge. Ready? It's Daniel 3.15. Charge. First one to find it. Just start reading it. Go ahead, we got, we got it right here. Now, I believe that's one of the longest verses, if not the longest verse in the Bible. Does anybody have a note in your Bible about that? I had that jotted down somewhere. 
um, words of King Nebuchadnezzar to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he lists all the instruments and asks about who is that God who will deliver you from my hands? Great verse, you know. Wow. He's going to learn very shortly, isn't he? Gentlemen, you are on the board. Nicely done there. Um, so I think that might be one of the longest verses, if not the longest verse in the Bible. Some of you maybe want to check that out. All right, number nine, how old was Moses when he died? 120. That was in the back there. Oh, Vic had that one. That's right, 120. That's right. Deuteronomy 34.7 tells us that. And what was the name of God we studied this morning? Did, did you have it right? I kind of, all right, very good. Jehovah Rapha or Jehovah Rapha, God, your healer. Very nice. Ladies, uh, you walked away with that one. Nicely done. Gentlemen, you still have some work to do. <laughs> well, take your Bibles and go to Luke chapter 7. I just want to share some thoughts with you as we pr prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. Just a little bit more on this topic of forgiveness, because really that's what this, this table is all about is this idea of forgiveness. Last time we talked about this, we, we talked about the two debtors, the one that was, uh, owed a lot of money and his master forgave him, and he found another servant who didn't owe much, uh, and he couldn't pay it, and he didn't forgive him, had him thrown into jail, and of course we learned some lessons about that. Uh, when we receive forgiveness, it's not always easy to extend forgiveness to others. You have to make that connection. Well, this is a slightly different take in this not... Um, uh, not so much a parable, um, but a real-life event where a parable is involved. And we have this woman, call her the woman of the streets, who comes and anoints Jesus' feet. Let's take a look at Luke seven thirty-six, and we'll read all the way down to um, verse 50. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman of the city, or in the city, who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil, and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Now, he said that to himself, didn't he? He probably didn't speak any words, but Jesus heard it, didn't he? And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, Teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii, the other 50. Now, a denari, uh, would, denarius would be a day's salary. So 500 denarii would be over a year's wages, a uh, good amount of money. Verse 42, and when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more, the one who owed 500, the one who owed 50. All right. So Simon answered, verse 43, and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? 
I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. She has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss. But this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. A beautiful, beautiful passage. Now, this idea of forgiveness, uh, when you have more to forgive, uh, you're more grateful. You know, when you've done more wrong, you're more grateful for the sins that you have been forgiven of. So let's kind of take it from the perspective of the forgiver. Uh, we know Jesus can forgive, and he demonstrates perfect forgiveness and perfect love. And uh, can you hear me okay? It sounds like I'm fading out. Is it all right, Jim? Everything here and okay? Um, CBS News aired a, a show one night called Nightmare in Columbia County. It was down in Texas. And uh, the story uh, was based upon an event in 1985 where um, a 17-year-old girl named Sherry was abducted. And uh, five la days later, they found her body. Without going into d any details here because of the children present, uh, the killer had allowed her to write a letter home to her family before uh, she died. And here's what she wrote. Last will and testament. I love you all so much. Please don't let this ruin your lives. Keep living for Jesus one day at a time. Do not worry about me because I know I'm going to be with my father. Everything works out for the good of those who love the Lord. All my love, Sherry. The killer was so brazen in his crime that he even called the family several times describing how Sherry had died. He was eventually captured, tried, and sentenced to two life sentences. Finally, of course, for the family, it seemed like it was over. However, a few years later, the killer wrote a note to the family, to Sherry's sister, whose name was Dawn, from prison to let her know that he, while in prison, had become a Christian and accepted Jesus as his Savior. He wrote in part in that letter, Dawn, will you and your family ever forgive me for what I've done? In the CBS story, she appeared, uh, gave a testimony at First Baptist Church in Wichita Falls, Texas. She said in that uh, speech, that testimony, quote, it wasn't easy. It wasn't overnight, but God did give me the answer that I needed. We are to forgive just as Jesus forgave us. I was finally able to sit down and write a letter to Mr. Bell, the, the criminal, telling him that only because of the grace that I have received in my life could I let him know that he was forgiven. That's tough, isn't it? That's just hard. Look at Ephesians 4.32 now. Two little words that really stand out. And those two little words speak great volumes. Ephesians 4.32, many of us have memorized this. We often quote it when our children are bickering, don't we? 
but what a powerful verse for all of us. The New King James says, And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. And there's those two words, even as. The KGV has just as. God in Christ forgave you. Even as, or in the same manner, or in the same way as God has forgiven you. See, those even as are the key to being able to forgive. Even as God has forgiven me, in that same way, I can forgive others. But those two words can also incriminate us when we are withholding forgiveness. And they become our judge. That we have freely received forgiveness from the Father, but are unwilling or unable to dispense forgiveness to others. Now, in the story of the woman who was anointing Jesus' feet, uh, it's, it's, it's easy, I think, to kind of miss the point of the story, especially for people that might have a little bit of the disease of self-righteousness. For example, uh, they might say, well, yeah, bad sinners have a lot more to be thankful for because they've done some really bad things, but thank goodness I haven't done a lot of bad things. And so, yeah, of course they're going to love God more. They've done rotten, dirty things, terrible things, and so they're going to be more thankful. But I'm not a filthy, disgusting person like they are, and so... Uh, obviously, I'm not in the same category, but I've lived a life where I've, you know, not, not done things like that. Thank God I'm not like her. So that, and that's kind of missing the whole point of the thing, isn't it? Uh, it's not meant for Simon to come about saying, well, thank goodness I'm not like her, uh, but I'll try to love you as much as I can. But, yeah, the fact is I haven't had as much to forgive as she does. But it was Jesus himself said, who said, I didn't come to save the righteous or in his case, the self-righteous is what he was, was saying. But he came to call sinners to repent, repentance. So three thoughts before we celebrate the Lord's Supper tonight I want to share with you. Uh, I think as we observe others, everybody, even unbelievers in my estimation, have the capacity to practice forgiveness. Everybody can forgive. They may not understand the whole realm of forgiveness as we as believers do, but everyone can say, you know, it's all right. Don't worry about it. Uh, you're good. Um, but believers should have a special capacity and understanding about forgiveness that the unbeliever lacks. But in my experience, and maybe yours as well, all Christians are not necessarily better than unbelievers in the way they practice forgiveness. Let me say that again. Believers should be able to be far better at dispensing forgiveness than unbelievers. But experience shows us that many Christians are not much better than even unbelievers in their practice of forgiveness. But I think Christians have three distinct advantages that unbelievers don't have. First of all, you and I can forgive as believers because forgiven people understand our own guilt. We understand the nature of sin, Romans Chapter 3 and verse 10, there's none righteous. No, not one. We understand that. We grasp that. And uh, as we were coming to know faith in Christ, we, we had a glimpse into our own rottenness of our own heart. We saw what was there. And we realized we were sinners. And we realized on our own we couldn't gain God's favor. Uh, like the story about the three men trying to jump across a chasm. All three jumped. Some got farther than others, but all three failed and fell to the bottom. We realize that some might have uh, greater abilities to be kind and, 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 and loving to others, 
But we all fail. None of us can reach God's standard. And so all of us are guilty. It was uh, Dr. D. James Kennedy, who's, who's now in heaven, who talked about the three sins a day. And he, he would tell his listeners, suppose you could narrow down your sins to just three a day. And uh, we do a lot more than that, right? But suppose you could be really super good and you could only sin three times a day. It's three evil thoughts, three uh, bad things you said, three unkind acts, whatever. You could narrow it down to just three. And uh, he would say, you probably feel like a saint just thinking about just three sins a day. Boy, that'd be amazing. And, uh, but let's add those up now. Let's say uh, you did three sins a day for a year. Now you're looking at over 1,000 in a year. Live to a ripe old age of 70 or 80 or 90. And you're looking at 70,000, 80,000, 90,000 sins on our record. Doesn't look so clean and pristine anymore, does it? It's James who says in 2.10, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet shall offend in one point shall be guilty of all. Well, we understand that. We understand the nature of our guilt. And because of that, we can understand the nature of the guilt of someone else who needs our forgiveness as well. And that can help us to be better at giving out forgiveness or granting forgiveness. Secondly, we can forgive others because forgiving people like you and me understand our own need for God's help. We understand, whereas others may not always, that we definitely need God's help. And uh, when we talk about forgiveness, and we, th- we, we talked about that Matthew 18 passage, when uh, if, if a brother offends you, then go to him uh, alone and tell him his fault between you and he, Matthew 18. And if he hears you, you've gained your brother. And uh, we talked about the offended person going to the offender and seeking reconciliation. Well, have you ever thought that in the book of Genesis, with the account of Adam and Eve, God practiced the very thing Jesus taught us? Adam and Eve had sinned. They had offended their heavenly father by partaking of the forbidden fruit. They were hiding in shame. And who came looking for them? Heavenly father. Adam, where are you? He knew where he was, of course, and he wanted Adam to respond. But God went looking for them. God came to confront them. God came to bring about their sin uh, that they might deal with that. And in the end, they have uh, two new clothing, coats of skin to cover their shame. And um, they forfeited their right to live in the Garden of Eden. But forgiveness took place. And most Bible scholars believe that the shed blood of those two animals was the first sacrifice for sin that we see in the scriptures. And we read between the lines there. It's not explicitly taught, but there seems to be an animal sacrifice, which Adam and Eve would later have learned and were practicing Uh, with their sons, uh, Cain and Abel. We need God because our good works never can do anything for us. We understand that. We need God's help. All the good works that we do, as the Bible says, are like filthy rags and are unable to buy anything with God. Uh, The late James Boyce, pastor uh, uh, at the Philadelphia, uh, pastor up in Philadelphia, said this, that our good works are like monopoly money. They're great value in the game, but absolutely no value in real life. And, uh, you know, in a sense, our good works may seem to have some value in this short temporary life here on earth and our social status and things like that, but with God, they're like monopoly money. No value at all. No currency power at all. Isaiah 64, 6 says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, And our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. God came looking 
God prepared for the covering, and then God does the same for us. We all need God's help, and we understand that. And I think that's an advantage that believers have over unbelievers. We can dispense forgiveness in that way because we understand our own need of it and how much we needed God. And then finally, you can forgive others because forgiven people understand the concept of grace. We understand grace. We name our churches after them. We name our Bible studies, and and, uh, we speak of grace, and it's in our music and our songs and, and throughout the scriptures. The Sunday school definition that we all probably have heard is God's riches at Christ's expense, G-R-A-C-E. That we have all the riches of heaven dispensed to us because of what Christ has done for us. And uh, theological definition deals more with God blessing us with something that we do not deserve, a gift. And that's part of the word charis there. We get our word grace from. It's a gift something that we don't deserve that God freely bestows upon us. Uh, So if you meet a young lady named Karis, that's grace. A shortened version of that is Kara, Kara, which means joy. And there is a connection between those two words in the Greek language. And Bill Goth had summed up the word grace in this way, and I've always liked his definition. Grace is the desire and ability God gives us to do his will joyfully. Grace. God allows us to want to obey him and to be joyful as we obey him in the process. Well, that's what grace is. And in opposition to mercy, mercy is where God withholds something negative, punishment, that we do deserve. Grace is where God blesses us with something wonderful that we do not deserve. We haven't earned that. Modern examples. Um, Your credit card holder sometimes has a grace period. Aren't you glad for that on occasion? Uh, COP Power Company up in Two Harbors has a five-day grace period for the electric bill. Um, Not that I've ever needed that too much, but it was nice. Students, you appreciate when a teacher might delay a test or a project and give you another week or so. That's always something that kids enjoy. Thanks, I have more time, or I wasn't quite ready for that test. Uh, maybe that warning you got for that speeding ticket instead of the ticket, um, you were graced out by that officer. And uh, that's a blessing. We appreciate that when those things happen. And so we understand that grace is giving someone a second or a third or a fourth chance. And we always appreciate that. See, God does that for us. God initiates the reconciliation for us. While we were yet sinners, Romans 5 8 says, Christ died for us. He came and did the job before we even realized what was happening. His own disciples didn't really fully grasp until after his resurrection. He came and took the initiative to make the way for us to be forgiven when we really didn't understand what was happening. And and when we were still, in a sense, shaking our fist in rebellion against our creator. God made it possible for us to escape that fiery, eternal pit. And instead, he offers us the glorious kingdom of heaven as a free gift. He goes further than that, decides he's going to adopt us as children. And then he wants to make us joint heirs with his own son, Jesus. And then he blesses us with the presence, the indwelling presence of his Holy Spirit, gives us the completed scriptures that we might read and memorize and apply them to our lives and grow in our understanding of him. Think of all that God has done for us in his gracious acts, his graciousness towards us. Because of grace, God did it all. He loves us. Well, I think we can understand 
God's grace is what is the basis for our being able to forgive. God's act of grace, giving his only beloved son, his only unique son that we might have the gift of life. And if he did that for us, how much more should we be willing to be to be willing and able to grant forgiveness to others? And so tonight, I encourage you to ask yourself, are you like Simon, the self-righteous Pharisee, who really needed nothing from anybody else and was very grudgingly willing to grant forgiveness to anyone else? He expected Jesus to pronounce judgment on that prostitute and to send her out. He had a cynical viewpoint. He had a judgmental viewpoint and a critical viewpoint. He didn't live his life in gratitude, but rather in self-righteousness. The Bible says, if you have received God's grace, then he wants you to forgive others as well. And yes, that person has to seek forgiveness in order for them to receive forgiveness. But that doesn't mean that you can't be willing to grant it before they ever come to you and ask for forgiveness. And that's where we can let that sin, that, that offense, go free. Even if that person's never sought our forgiveness, if they never think they've done anything wrong, they don't want to listen to us, and, and they don't want to, to make things right, we can still be willing and able to grant that forgiveness and let that go and not hold that thing in our hearts and uh, become uh, a blockage between us and our fellowship with our Heavenly Father. Holding grudges, some long-standing state of forgiveness, uh, these are things that can poison our walk with the Savior. And that's not what God wants us to live like. Well, to withhold forgiveness implies, one, either I'm not a Christian because I haven't received God's grace and so I don't know how to dispense it to others, or it may be because I've been unwilling to practice it and I'm nursing this grudge. I'm caring for it. I don't want to let it go. I want to hold on to it. And, uh, and there's a sense in which I don't want to leave this, I'll let it go, because I want that other person to know uh, that how much he has hurt me. And I want to have this control over him by nursing this grudge. That's not the way to live. We're, we're not designed to carry that kind of stuff. We're not designed as vessels from the Heavenly Father to carry anger and bitterness and grudges and, and unforgiveness. We are not designed to hold that in any more than a foam cup can hold gasoline. We're not meant to hold that kind of stuff. It's going to destroy us. We need to get it out through forgiveness. So what's it take to change if we're struggling with this? I encourage you to pray about that. I encourage you to study God's word about that, the passages that we've looked at, and there are many, many others about forgiveness. And if you'd like to make an appointment with your pastor or church leaders, I encourage you to do that. Talk with someone you trust who understands the Bible and ask them to share with you how and what steps you might take to practice biblical forgiveness. And... Uh, Really, that's what this table is all about. The cup and the bread remind us of that incredible act of love, of grace, dispensed to us on the cross that we might be forgiven. Oh, the power of the cross. We stand forgiven, he says, at the cross. Praise God for that. I'll ask our uh, deacon to come up and uh, prepare the table for celebrating our Lord's Supper this evening.
we have two ordinances that we observe. These are ordained by the Lord. We have, of course, baptism for believers and uh, by immersion to recognize and publicly affirm a testimony of faith in Christ. We'll be having one uh, with our church family before too long. And we also celebrate on a monthly basis the Lord's Supper, also known as communion or the Lord's Table. And uh, it was a Passover meal that Jesus was observing with his 12 disciples. But in that meal, he identified and re-symbolized a couple of elements. Rather than the wine having other elements of symbolism, reminding them of the exodus and the loss of life with the ten, with the ten plagues, he applied the shed blood to his own life and the bread uh, to his own body. And we are reminded that as we partake of these elements, we are taking into ourselves the very life of Jesus. Not for salvation, because we've already come to know Christ as our Savior, but in a memorial way, a reminder of what he's done for us to never forget the incredibly high cost he paid for us. Some churches teach that the elements do different things. Uh, Transubstantiation is one teaching that says these elements actually are transformed into the literal, physical blood and flesh of Jesus as you consume it in faith. And we don't believe the Bible teaches that. In fact, when Jesus said, this is my body, he was still in his body. So it was clearly symbolic. Uh, It wasn't actually his body at the time he said that. They were metaphorical words. Uh, Other churches teach that uh, consubstantiation, which says that Christ's presence is, is, is in and around these elements in a very sacramental way. And so, um, you know, if you drop a crumb on the floor, kind of a bad thing has happened. You don't want to do that. You know, you don't want to spill and you don't want to pour the remainder of the juice down the drain. You know, you'd be very f- upset about that kind of thing uh, because you're kind of pouring the presence of Christ down the drain. You know, we don't look at it that way. Uh, we see it as a memorial supper to remind us of the real Christ who is seated on the right hand of the throne of God and also dwelling in us, his people, through his spirit. And there's no uh, disservice we could ever do uh, with these elements once our service is over. And uh, we don't transform them into anything spiritual. Uh, We don't even necessarily take the time to consecrate them. It's, it's, It's the faith that we have in Christ that is the consecrating element here that you have Uh, We consecrate them as we partake of them in faith. Uh, I can't do anything. I can't wave my hands. I can't hold them up uh, or or sprinkle them with anything to consecrate these elements in any way. Um, It's the meaning of what they represent that is consecrated. The Christ on that cross. That's the consecrated meaning here that we want to take with us. So it's a memorial supper. It's a backward look, looking at what Christ did on the cross for us. It's an inward look. Am I walking with him in faith today to the best of my ability? Am I trying to please him with my life? Not perfectly, but is Christ uh, my shepherd that I'm following with, following him every day of my life? And am I sensitive to sin? Am I careful to practice forgiveness as he's taught me? Am I careful to uh, follow his teachings and as fathers in, in raising our family and loving our wives, as wives and uh, loving our husbands and caring for our children, as children with uh, obeying and respecting our parents? Are we following the the things that God has placed in our lives? Are we doing the things he wants us to do right now in our lives? Taking time in his word each day, time for prayer and scripture, time for sharing my faith with others. Am I walking with him 
as he desires for me to walk. And that's what this is all about, an inward look. And then there's the upward look. We await the coming of the Lord. Jesus said, do this as often as you drink of it um, in remembrance of me unto the coming of the Lord. So we're going to keep doing this as long as the Lord delays in his coming. We'll keep doing this so long as he tarries. And uh, some churches may do it more often than others, and we'll keep doing it uh, once a month here at Faith, unless the deacons and pastors decide to do it some other time frame. We'll just keep on remembering, and we'll never forget uh, the great thing that he did for us on the cross. Well, the Bible says on the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and he gave thanks. Uh, Would one of our deacons ask the blessing on the bread at this time?